Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCC School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On May 14th of this year, a federal jury in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina returned a historic blockbuster verdict against the state of North Carolina when it awarded $75 million to Leon Brown and Henry McCollum after they had spent 31 years in prison, most of them on death row, for crimes that they did not commit. This jury's decision sought to compensate Brown and McCollum for a terrible fate which they were forced to experience and to punish state, county, and local officials for coercion confessions, suppressing evidence, and fabricating evidence that resulted in their conviction for the rape of an 11-year-old girl in Robeson County in 1983. The Brown-McCollum case exploded in September of 1983 when the two men were convicted of rape and murder and sentenced to death. At the time, Brown was 15 years old and McCollum was 19. The two were half brothers and Brown who resided in New Jersey was visiting his family for the summer in Robeson County. At the time, they were the youngest to be sentenced to death in North Carolina. During their incarceration, the North Carolina Center for Death Penalty Litigation through attorney Ken Rose, who was the director of that organization, became involved with these cases and waged a historic struggle to obtain their vindication and release from prison. This campaign resulted in the revelation of wrongdoing by state and local law enforcement and the discovery of a discarded cigarette butt which contained the DNA of the actual killer. Based on the presence of this evidence, a Robeson County judge vacated their guilty verdicts in 2014 and former governor Pat McCrory granted a pardon of innocence, which resulted in payments of $750,000 for each man. A federal civil rights case was filed in 2015 the town of Red Springs settled its portion of this claim for a million dollars. And Robeson County settled its portion for $9 million just hours before closing arguments were conducted in the federal trial. After the jury deliberated, they awarded Brown and McCollum a million dollars for each year that they spent in prison and a separate $13 million for punitive damages due to the deliberate conduct of the state law enforcement officers. What happens now with these two men and what will be the impact of this sad saga on justice in North Carolina 
are just two of the many open questions which we will discuss tonight with attorney Kenneth Rose, the former executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation and the attorney who became the primary champion for these two men. So Ken, thank you very much for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure to be with you, Professor Joyner and Professor Dawson. My pleasure. All right. Well, I want to just start out just uh, uh, commending you uh, for your work uh, in, uh, in this case. I say this case, even though it involves two different uh, individuals who were, uh, have different files in our criminal uh, system, uh, but uh, you uh, ended up representing uh, these uh, two men for over uh, 20 years. So could you just start us out? by describing to our audience uh, the work of the uh, North Carolina Center for Death Penalty Litigation. The, the Center for Death Penalty Litigation got started in, in 1996. And it was uh, a offshoot of the North Carolina Resource Center, um, which had up to that point been funded by federal, um, federal funds but that had all been cut off by the federal government. Um, and at that time, Henderson Hill um, started the, uh, this new nonprofit along with Gretchen Engel and others. And um, they were able to obtain a state grant from the state legislature in 1996. Um, and that, that continued for some time in order to represent people who were, had no money, um, who were on death row. And uh, so it, uh, it was really the credit goes to Henderson to get, to get the office going. And um, he stayed for about, well, it was, it was started earlier than 1996. It was started around 1993. And he he's, um, then went off and with, and, and with an amazing career at Ferguson Stein um, doing civil rights work and criminal defense. And he has proven him to be one of the best criminal defense attorneys in, in certainly in the state and perhaps in the South. He's tried case, famous cases in Atlanta and Mississippi. Um, and Gretchen Engel, has since gone on to um, become the, the current director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. Um, the center represents people um, in post-conviction, but also represented people who were charged in, in capital cases um, and were tried. So we, we did both trial cases and post-conviction cases, and we advised attorneys who represented people on death row. Mm -hmm. Now, Brown and McCollum were uh, convicted in 1983. Can you talk about how you uh, ended up becoming involved with them or becoming aware of, uh, of their case and the claims that, uh, that they were making? Yes. So they, they were convicted in 1984, 80, and then... Uh, they had a, an appeal to the North Carolina Supreme Court and won their appeal. They were represented by attorney from the um, North Carolina Appellate Defender's Office. They won their appeal 
and they were uh, on the basis of, of faulty jury instructions. And then they were um, given new trials and tried separately. So they had been tried together um, and then received new trials. And in 1991, um, Henry McCollum was retried and resentenced to death um, in Robinson County. And then, um, and then um, the following year, Leon Brown, who had been 15, as you, as you rightly said, at the time of, of the crime, um, was retried and he was not convicted of the murder, but he was convicted of the rape and, or at least assisting on the rape. And he was resentenced to life imprisonment. So both men had spent several years by that time on death row, had witnessed several executions. Um, and Leon Brown was then um, sent to a different prison to serve his life imprisonment. Um, so then um, Henry McCollum um, had a new lawyer that appealed his, his conviction death sentence. And that appeal was, um, he, he lost the appeal. Um, although there had been a dissent by, by uh, then Chief Justice um, Exum based on Mr. McCollum's intellectual disability. And um, Chief Justice Exum felt that, that the death penalty should not be given to someone who was intellectually disabled as Mr. McCollum was. Um, the case went up on appeal um, to the cert petition to the US Supreme Court and he lost that and then an execution date was set. And that's the point where I got involved in, and um, I was recruited by Jim Coleman, um, who at that time was, had been a, a visiting professor at Duke Law School, and um, who, but he was a member of, a, of an illustrious law firm um, and, uh, in, in Washington, DC, and they had agreed to represent Mr. McCollum for free um, in his post-conviction um, proceedings. And um, that the name of the firm was Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. And uh, so my role, at, at least initially, was just to be local counsel. I was a member of the bar. Of the bar. Um, Professor Coleman at that point was not a member of the bar and I was assisting his firm and him and representing Mr. McCollum. Um, he had an execution date and um, when I first met him, because after at that, at that time, after you lose in the United States Supreme Court from direct appeal, the state was automatically setting execution dates. And I recall the judge gave us three months to file a post-conviction motion um, and appointed me uh, to represent Mr. McCollum and um, stayed the execution. So from there, we filed the most of the post-conviction motion. Um, and uh, that motion sat for 20 years. Um, mm. It was a motion challenging his confessions. It challenged Mr. McCollum's competency. It challenged the, the um, effectiveness of his trial counsel. And, um, but and most importantly, it challenged the, 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 
the, the confession because um, we had experts that evaluated Mr. McCollum that said he couldn't possibly have understood the language that was used in that confession. Um, and, and his conviction was based um, primarily, almost entirely, on the confessions that he and his brother um, were, were alleged to have given to police. So the confessions were the key. We believed that he couldn't understand them and that the police essentially made them up, um, at least certainly inserted the language that, that Mr. McComb didn't understand in that, in that confession. And, but, but the police, of course, maintained that Henry and Leon gave all the details in those confessions. And by details, I mean things like the brand of the beer cans that were found at the scene with the fingerprint of, of the victim on the beer cans, the brand of the cigarettes that were found at the scene, the, 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 um, the blouse that the victim was wearing, the, um, the people who were involved in the killings, the names of the people, the people, the, the details that would only be known to law enforcement and to the perpetrator. Um, and as it turned out, there was one law enforcement officer who had responsibility for the crime scene, had responsibility for the, to, to view the autopsy and talk to the doctor, the coroner performing the autopsy and who also was involved in the interrogation. And it was, as, as, as um, we, we found out much later, um, that officer provided the details in those confessions. Now that's a, a, a chilling scenario that you uh, present, which implicates uh, local officials in, in Red Springs as well as members of the uh, State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, at the time that these uh, confessions were uh, extracted, allegedly, uh, were the local officials and the SBI actively involved together in crafting together uh, this uh, scenario that resulted in the uh, conviction of uh, Brown and McCullough? Yes, they were. This, this uh, crime occurred in a small town of Red Springs, North Carolina. The town has about 4,000 population. The, the Red Springs Police Department at that time had a chief and maybe two law enforcement officers. That was it. And then um, the chief, um, Chief Haggins, called in support from both the, the Robinson County Sheriff's Department and the SPI, and they received that um, considerable support. And all of those officers worked together, um, not just um, during the interrogations of Mr. Brown and Mr. McCollum, but also interviewing everybody in the, in, in the area, including, as we later found out, the actual perpetrator of the, of the crime. Um, and that was Roscoe Artis. They had interviewed Mr. Artis um, but never did a background check, and which is shocking because had they done the background check, and, and Mr. Artis lived 40 feet 
from where the the um, crime crime scene was, forty feet. Um, he was the close. His house was the closest to the crime scene of anybody. Had they done the background check, they would have found a serial rapist and uh, and a, a person who had previously committed murder. Um, they didn't do it. Were, were you able to conclude why these uh, law enforcement officials focused on uh, Leon and Henry as the uh, suspects in this uh, in this offense? Yes. Um, so I wasn't able to figure this out until 2014. <laughs> and the reason I wasn't is because the law enforcement never revealed who the informant was or the content of her statement to police. Um, but in 2014, we received that information. What we found out is that the, um, the informant um, was a, a young teenager and she had heard a rumor, according to her first statement, she had heard a rumor um, that Henry and several other people may have been involved. And she had heard from someone else in, in the high school. What we, we didn't have that statement, nor do we have the later statement she made to police, which said that none of that was true. And that later statement was just a week later. Um, none of that was true. She heard no rumors. She thought that Henry McCollum looked, looked funny and she had, she had made it up. And um, so she knew nothing about the crime or the murder. All right, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And we are talking with uh, attorney Ken Rose uh, about the uh, tragic conviction of Leon Brown and Henry McCollum, which resulted in their spending 31 years in prison for crimes that they did not commit. And just recently, a federal grand jury returned a monumental verdict and award uh, on their uh, behalf. We're gonna take our break uh, right now and uh, want you to stay with us as we talk more about this, uh, this, this chilling uh, injustice that has occurred here in, uh, in North Carolina and the vindication of uh, these uh, two men after uh, they've lost most of their early life. Uh, so stay with us and we'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. 
course listings, and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening. We're talking with uh, attorney Ken Rose, uh, who represented uh, Leon Brown and Henry McCollum for uh, over 20 years as a part of his uh, work with the uh, Center for Death Penalty uh, Litigation, which is housed in, uh, in Durham uh, and did uh, an outstanding job of uh, discovering uh, the uh, injustice that uh, occurred in, uh, in these cases and then championed uh, the uh, effort to uh, challenge those, uh, those convictions. Uh, but Ken, let, let's you know, start off in, in, in the second portion of, of the show. Um, many people in prison say that they are innocent. Uh, that uh, they are the victims of uh, frame-ups. Uh, and I'm sure that that was one of the claims that you heard uh, from uh, Brown and uh, McCollum uh, in these cases. What, what was it that convinced you that their claim had merit, that uh, they truly were the victims of uh, a wrongful conviction and this was something that you needed to stick with like glue. Yeah, there were really, really two things. One is Henry McCollum, who was my client at the time, not not Leon. Um, I did not represent Leon until later. Um, Henry was adamant about his innocence. And by adamant, I mean, every time I talked to him through all those years, he would say, I don't belong here. When can I go home? I want to do, you know, when we did DNA testing, which we did later in 2005, excuse me, we did it in 2004. Um, he was he was confident he was going home. Um, we tested cigarette butt um, evidence um, with a private lab, and it showed that Henry McCollum did not contribute biological evidence. To, he did not smoke the cigarette. And the cigarette was, was identified within two feet of all the other evidence that was found at the, at the scene, including bloody sticks and blood on the victim. Um, and um, that wasn't enough in 2005. And, and, but Henry never wavered. Henry didn't want to talk about issues that did not relate to, to uh, guilt although there were other issues that he could potentially have gotten relief from on sentence, including his intellectual disability. He was adamant. In addition, the evidence was, was so flimsy. The confessions were the, were the central evidence and the two confessions conflicted with each other, Mr. Brown's and Mr. McCollum's. There were people named in, in Henry McCollum's confession that had lock solid al alibis that were not there. And 
some of the evidence in, in Henry McCollum's confession actually conflicted with the autopsy. He said that the victim had been stabbed, the victim hadn't been stabbed. Um, he said that there were five people there and of those five, he included his 15 year old brother. Um, he said of those five, two of them, one was out of state and lived out of state at the time of the killing. Another was in a different city in North Carolina at the time of the killing. And the, and the state never prosecuted anybody else except Henry McCollum and Leon Brown. So for all of those reasons, there was a strong, strong case of innocence, but there was a problem. And the problem is only the, the these confessions contained information that only the person who committed the crime or law enforcement would know. And law enforcement testified, these, these officers that uh, who were um, found liable um, a couple weeks ago, they testified, two of them testified that Henry McCollum provided all the details in the confession. So in order to win this case, we had to convince, convince a court that the law enforcement officers committed perjury. And no court was, we, no court in our view was willing to say that. Even though we filed our claims and our claims sat, no court was willing to say that these law enforcement officers committed perjury until the DNA hit in 2014, in 2014 on the CODIS database that identified Roscoe Artis as the person who had smoked that cigarette at the crime scene. And that was the point that changed everything. And I, and I, I want to emphasize that it was, not a, it was not me or the legal team that actually found this evidence that, that did the CODIS base search. It was the Innocence Inquiry Commission, North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. So we did a DNA test in 2005, showed Henry did not contribute um, the evidence to the, did not smoke the cigarette that found at the crime scene, but Henry's confession had said someone else had smoked that cigarette. So in order to actually get him relieved at that point, we had to show that, that not only that Henry hadn't um, smoked the cigarette, but we had to show who did. And at that point, we weren't thinking, I wasn't thinking about Roscoe Artis. I did think about doing a CODIS database, but the evidence we had could not be searched on CODIS. They could not use our DNA tests that we had done um, to search the CODIS database. So it wasn't until 2010 when the Innocence Inquiry Commission became involved and did renewed DNA testing of that cigarette butt and then ran that cigarette um, butt testing against the CODIS data, database that they came up with the hit on Roscoe Artis. And that wasn't until 2014 um, that we found out that Roscoe Artis had contributed the biological evidence to the, um, to the cigarette butt. And it all made sense. It all fit together. So at that point, 
the Innocence Inquiry Commission interviewed Roscoe Artis several times, and he um, gave varying, varying admissions, no real confession, but admissions that he knew Sabrina Bowie, that he um, had contact with her, and um, he, because they had, they told him that we have your DNA on this cigarette butt. And he, so he made up a varying, a, a series of varying stories, but which revealed that he knew Sabrina and, and was likely involved with her. Um, but the, the real, real evidence that, that showed that, that Roscoe Artis committed this crime is it was the MO the way he did it was almost exactly the same MO um, that, that he did a month later in Red Springs in, in um, the murder of Joanne Brockman. And with a, a young teenager out in a field, um, rape murder, um, pulled her, her um, shirt over her head and, and left it, um, and um, but but and leaving the body in the field, and he was convicted for that murder, and sentenced to death, and later was given a life sentence for that murder. Um, so, it, all all of the evidence um, in the end showed that Roscoe Mar Artis committed this murder. What was what was interesting about law enforcement's efforts at that um, about Roscoe Artis's was some of the same law enforcement officers that investigated Joanne Brockman's murder investigated Sabrina, Sabrina Bowie's murder. And those investigators did ask, did interview Roscoe Artis in September 1983. And that interview did not get put into law enforcement files. So at, at this most recent civil um, civil action in court, the, the lawyers maintained, the lawyers for Henry and Leon maintained that law enforcement knew that, knew that Roscoe Artis had killed um, Joanne Brockman, obviously, and, and he was convicted for that. But also, they had good reason to know that Roscoe Artis killed Sabrina Bowie and deliberately removed his statement, that any evidence of that interview that he was a suspect from their files um, because they, they didn't want to be found out as having been negligent in the death of Joanne Brockman. Because had they properly done their investigation, had they investigated uh, Roscoe Artis's background and history, they would have known that he had committed crimes in the exact same way. They didn't do it and they were negligent. Ken, there are uh, a number of people who don't fully understand how a confession can be coerced. Uh, and, and they say, you know, innocent people don't confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Can you talk about how it is that law enforcement are able to secure coerced confessions kind of generally and what specifically happened in this case that led to these coerced confessions? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I so what they what they did was um, they they heard both Henry and Leon say we did not do this, and and Henry maintained that for the at least the first hour of his of his interview. Um, he said I didn't do it. I didn't know it. I don't know anything about it. Um, they yelled at him. They um, cursed at him. They did not hit him, but they, but they, they kept at it and they kept at it and at, and they combined that with another technique. They said, "Well, you know, just tell us, tell us, tell us what happened, and we're going to let you go. We're going to let you go." And they, 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 by badgering him, and this is a, a teenager who had no, no prior record. He was 19 at the time. He, he was not from this area and he was intellectually disabled and he was attending special ed classes when he was in school in New Jersey. So all of this was foreign to him. His mother was right outside the room. They would not let him talk to, to his mother. Um, and I th he, was, he was at that point willing to tell them anything that would get him out of that room in the, in the police station. He was scared and he didn't understand that by confessing to a lesser role to it. So he, he confesses, but he says, I held her arms while this was happening. I didn't, I wasn't the principal person to come up with the idea of a rape. I wasn't the person who decided to kill her. I wasn't the person who killed her, except I held her arms down. And he thought by doing that, that was going to let get, let him go. He didn't understand that he was confessing to first degree murder. And um, that was effective technique. And it was a very similar technique that the police used for his brother, 15 year old brother, Leon. They yelled at him, they cursed at him, they told him he could go if he just signed their statement. He signed their statement. Both Henry and Leon were barely literate. Um, didn't really didn't know what they were signing. Couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand in that language. So, so they they had no clue. And um, so, just to give you an example of how far that went two days later in the hallway in the courtroom when the, when somehow miraculously a news reporter gets in that hallway which is only open to law enforcement and and court officials and asks henry what wh what did you do did you do it henry says no and then they ask him well who did henry repeats the name of the person who he had said in the alibi and says, well, I just held her arms down. He had no clue. And he's just repeating what he had said in the confession and thinking, he's still thinking even then that he was gonna be able to go home by saying that. Um, so easily, people easily manipulated who are intellectually disabled and law enforcement tactics that were involved harassment and manipulation and lies. They also said we have a witness that, that can put you there, which was the informant um, who three days later said, 
I didn't even hear a rumor about it. I didn't know anything about it. So that was part of their techniques as well. Um, finally, this, these confessions weren't recorded and they weren't videotaped. And it wasn't in, in North Carolina until 2004 that North Carolina passed a law that requires videotaping confessions. Um, and even then there's some exceptions to it. So it's not iron, iron proof, but it's, you know, it's good that we passed this law and it would have been important if he had a, a taped confession at that time. Um, I think that would have, um, that would have exonerated him. So that's, that's another step that we have done that, that's very important. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking this hour about the wrongful convictions of Leon Brown and Henry McCulloch and their 40 year effort to establish their innocence and the legal victory, which resulted in a jury award of more than $75 million in damages for 31 years that they spent in prison. And we've been speaking with attorney Kenneth Rose, who is the former executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. And I take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Kenneth Rose, executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. And we've been talking about the tragic and wrongful convictions of Leon Brown and Henry McCullough and the 40 year effort to establish their innocence and the legal victory recently resulted in a jury verdict of more than $75 million. So Ken, right before the break, you were talking about how easy it it was and is for law enforcement to coerce confessions. And now the exonerations in this case were tied to DNA. And as you talked before about uh, the 2014 uh, DNA evidence that was secured, that's when the case really kind of turned around. Can you share with us the number or the percentage of DNA exonerations that include coerced confessions? 
Yes. Um, there, 30% of all DNA exonerations have involved false confessions. And of those 30% that involved false confessions, half of them had evidence that was not public knowledge. And the reason that's so significant is it means that law enforcement officers are providing that information in those confessions and the, defense, the persons who they're interrogating didn't know it. And in and, and, and Henry and Leon's case, they, they compounded that by then testifying that all the information that were in those confessions came from Henry and Leon, not from law enforcement. So we would have to show that the law enforcement officers committed perjury in order to, to suppress those confessions and overturn the convictions. And that made it very, very difficult in post-conviction proceedings to get relief until the DNA hit on Roscoe Artis. Um, so um, the, the irony of this and the, 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 the horror of this is if there had not been a cigarette butt found at that scene with, by, with DNA of Roscoe Artis, it is very possible that Henry McCollum is still on death row today and Leon Brown is still in prison. Um, and, and I think that that is likely true with other cases where there's no such DNA evidence. Um, and it, it is very concerning about our system that we could execute somebody and probably have um, despite their innocence. Well, Ken, can you kind of, kind of talk about uh, the, the culpability of the prosecutor uh, in, this, uh, in this case? Because surely uh, some red flags went up somewhere uh, doing this uh, this effort to uh, convict them and bring them uh, to uh, to trial. Yes. So the prosecutor in this case was um, his name was Joe Freeman Britt, and Joe Freeman Britt was in the Guinness Book of World Records at that time for having um, prosecuted the most people on death row. Um, he was from he prosecuted in Robinson County. And even though it's a small county, it does have a lot of murders. And the way he, he, the way he got that record was that he would take every one of them and seek the death penalty. And it didn't matter if the, per, the, the person who was alleged to have committed it was 15. It didn't matter if the evidence that he had was flimsy. He was extremely effective at at getting death sentences. And in, in contrast at that time, and um, at that time, the defense attorneys that were doing these cases um, were not very, very good and um, weren't paid much, didn't get support, were given a lot of different, a lot of cases. They were getting a lot of cases they had to try against Joe Freeman Britt and they were not equipped to do it. And um, didn't have the investigative resources, didn't have law enforcement resources. And most importantly, Joe Freeman Britt would not provide evidence of, of innocence. 
if he had it. He would not do it. He did not do it. And in this case, law enforcement also did not do it. And so it was a combination, in my view, of law enforcement that were withholding evidence that they knew was false, that they knew could have helped exonerate Leon and Henry, and also the prosecutor um, withholding evidence of, of their innocence. Now, there was one instance that's worth talking about that's particularly shocking in, in this regard. So three days before Henry and Leon's trial in 1984, a law enforcement officer um, from the Red Springs Police Department asked, submitted samples of, the, of fingerprints from the beer can, known samples that could have been tested um, from the beer cans found at the scene to um, the state um, SBI lab. And they mentioned two potential suspects and they submitted their fingerprints. And those, one of those two suspects was Roscoe Artis. Three days before Henry and Leon's capital murder trial. So that, those, that test never happened. And what, what did happen is a year later, that request for a test was canceled. They never did the test. So they had somebody in law enforcement and, and the SBI, I mean, not the SBI, but someone in law enforcement, probably at the Red Springs Police Department had reason to suspect, and they knew Roscoe Artis had been convicted of capital murder previously from, from Red Springs. So they knew about Roscoe Artis and they had reason to suspect him as the murderer of Sabrina Bowie, but they hit it. They never disclosed it and they never followed suit. And the reason they didn't follow suit because Henry and Leon had been convicted. So they didn't want to know. And Joe Freeman Britt didn't want to know. Um, so it, yeah, that, it, it, this is a, a really shameful um, and, and terrible episode in, in, in our history. And I, and I think that there, there has to be something more than just compensation for these um, two men, for Henry and Leon, I think there has to be some reckoning. And um, one way of, of doing a reckoning is, is look back at the, at the cases that involve these law enforcement and this prosecutor and see, look at for confessions and see if the evidence supports those convictions. Um, because we know that there were significant problems in the, in, in the methodology and the actions of law enforcement. And we need to do something about it. And I think we can. And Robeson County had a history of uh, corruption uh, for, um, for many years uh, that came to fore. But let me just quickly... Uh, ask about the uh, uh, Innocence Commission, North Carolina Innocence Commission's involvement in this case, and uh, how did they get involved and the results of the uh, work that, uh, that they did? Yes, they, they are the heroes in this exoneration, and, and specifically Sharon Stilato and Kendra Montgomery Blinn 
um, were involved in this um, exoneration. And they got involved in 2010 um, at the request of Leon Brown. Leon Brown, um, you know, like Henry, maintained throughout that he was innocent of, innocent of this crime. And he, and I'm guessing someone, had, someone who he was in contact with because he's intellectually disabled, um, helped him with this. But he contacted the Innocence Inquiry Commission and asked for a review. They looked at the evidence. They saw the evidence was extremely weak. They knew that they needed to do some follow-up on the DNA testing. And they tested every item of physical evidence at the scene. And they compared it to everyone who could potentially have been a suspect. And they ran the, um, the, the um, biological evidence on CODIS. Um, so they did it, and they interviewed Roscoe Artis several times. So they did an amazingly thorough job and, and are heroes. Okay. And that resulted in the uh, convictions being uh, reversed and leading us up to the, uh, uh, the uh, federal trial. But in between that, uh, there was an effort by an out-of-state attorney uh, who got involved in the uh, representation of Brown and McCollum that uh, actually ended up ripping them off of the uh, state uh, 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 reimbursement or state uh, funds that, uh, that they received. Can you kind of talk about that in our waning minutes here? Yeah, so um, I, I represented Henry and Leon in the petition for pardon of innocence. I was doing it for free. And I was working with uh, other attorneys as well. Vernetta Alston, who's a representative in Durham, was my co-counsel and she did a great work on this case. And um, so we, we knew the case back and forwards. We knew the evidence and we submitted the petition. And then Henry's sister um, convinced Henry to hire Patrick McGarrow, who offered them immediate funding. And the way he did this was through loans um, from, back, from lenders that charge 19% interest, charges huge upfront fees, and um, got uh, liens against any judgment that Henry and Leon would receive. And Patrick McGarrow said that if you fire me, I will still get my fees, a third of, of whatever you get, including the pardon of innocence money from the state. Um, and so Henry agreed to it because he was easy to man manipulate and did not understand. And, um, and it was sad, but um, Judge Boyle, federal district court judge looked at it and thought that McGarrow was not treating Henry fairly, thought that Henry was not um, necessarily competent to handle his financial affairs, appointed a guardian, Ray Tarleton, who fired McGarrow, who then recruited a, a law firm from DC, Hogan Lovells, who represented Henry and Leon for free in the, in the um, civil suit, along with local counsel, Elliot Abrams. And they did an amazing job. Um, so, the ending was was great. 
it, but the but the um, roller coaster to get to the ending was very very difficult. Um, Miguel ended up getting suspended from practice because of his uh, cheating of Henry McCollum, which was also a good result. And, and credit to the North Carolina State Bar for doing that. So what's the future for Henry and Leon? And have you been in contact with um, either of them recently? Yes. Yeah. Henry is ecstatic. He's, he's, he has a fiance and he's, he's hoping to get married. He's, he's looking to make repairs on his house in, uh, in, in Virginia. He's looking to purchase a house, possibly another house in, in um, Raleigh. And he, he's, um, he's just thrilled. He, he's, he's thrilled not because, um, not just because of the money. This has been such a harsh um, go for him that he survived and he testified at the civil hearing and it, and it took a lot of courage um, for him to do that. Um, and he did did it well, and he did it strong, and he's proud of that. And and I think he he does have a um, very good future because he is going to be supported um, by guardians that will look after his money, and um, he has people who love him. Um, and I think the same is true for for Leon. Leon has a lot of mental illnesses, in, in addition to the intellectual disability, so it's it's a much more difficult go of it for him. And so what are you up to now? I'm doing restorative justice uh, with restorative justice Durham and I, I'm very excited about it. I love it as an alternative to the criminal justice system that takes into account both victims and, and persons who committed um, crimes and, and, and deals with the harm to everyone involved. And it's, um, it's been a pleasure for me to be doing that for two years and to continue to do it. We're fortunate uh, that, uh, that you were there, that the uh, Center for Death Penalty Litigation uh, was there, that uh, North Carolina has an innocence uh, commission uh, that got involved in this and, and other uh, similar type cases and have been able to establish uh, a host of uh, wrongful, wrongful convictions that have occurred here in the state. And as a result of that work, our criminal uh, procedure has improved tremendously over what it was uh, in uh, 1983. And that, uh, those improvements, although they aren't sufficient uh, to handle everything, uh, they have taken North Carolina a step above uh, where other states are at this point. So we commend you for all of the things that, uh, that you've done on behalf of the uh, uh, people who are victimized by this, uh, by this process that uh, victimizes uh, rather than uh, uh, provides justice. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to, to be with both of you today. I, I um, enjoyed it a lot. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. Thank our guest, Attorney Kenneth Rose, who is the former executive director of the Center for Death Penalty Litigation. And we want to express our 
care and concern and um, our expressions of uh, goodwill to Mr. Leon Brown and Mr. Henry McCullough. Uh, we here at WNCU and the entire Legal Eagle community and North Carolina communities support you uh, and wish you the best. To thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy and safe.